From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about overcoming adversity. I'm John Earl. I met this man, 81 years old, and as we're talking, he's like, you see that door? And he pointed towards the back door. He goes, that door is open, and it stays open ever since December 28th. And he told me, I sleep with my sneakers on. And I'm like, what do you mean you sleep with your sneakers on? And then he tells me, my wife is bedbound. And if I have to put on my sneakers and I have to save her, I'm not going to have time. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in late February. A few days later, the first coronavirus case was confirmed in New York City. And everything changed. This interview is about resilience in the wake of a natural disaster. It centers on Puerto Rico, where a series of earthquakes around the new year left thousands homeless. With the ground still trembling, Mount Sinai's Hansel Arroyo and Lisa Abar arrived on the island. They walked through affected areas, going door to door, and asking people how they were doing, like really doing. Dr. Arroyo is a psychiatrist, and Lisa manages a psychiatric emergency room. Together, they treated mental injuries and supported survivors' resilience. In our conversation, they share what they saw and what they learned. Their insights remain timely for Puerto Rico, which has endured more than 9,000 tremors this year, but also for communities across the country that are struggling to unite against COVID-19 and racial injustice, and even to imagine a brighter future together. So here is Dr. Hansel Arroyo and Lisa Abar. So first of all, thank you guys both so much for being on Road to Resilience. I'm so glad to have you here and to talk about this trip. Um, where did this trip come about? You get a phone call, you get an email. How do you get included on a trip of people going to Puerto Rico to provide mental health services? I heard through Dr. Sabina Lim, who reached out via email, that we're looking for bilingual mental health providers. And, you know, they know that I have family living in Puerto Rico. So I, I just got like, are you interested? And I like read through it and I immediately I was like, 100%. You said you had family there. Yeah. What did you know about the situation? I mean, I, I had been pretty close to what's been going on. So both my mom and my dad have like informed me of every single time that there's an earthquake. And I've already have heard how, you know, even my mom was anxious, having trouble sleeping, sleeping in the living room. It's something that you can't really prepare for. It's not like a hurricane when a hurricane hits the island or as, as it's happened. Um, where you know it's coming, you know the expected date. So essentially, you just live in a constant like kind of fear. Yeah, like, it's like the the perfect instrument for anxiety. Absolutely, yeah. right. It's something that could upend your life at any moment, and you have no idea when it's going to strike. Right. Yes. And I, as I understand it correctly, it was your first time in a disaster area. Correct. Were you? What were your feelings about that? Were you nervous? Did you? Did you feel like you were well prepared? What did you do to prepare? So, unfortunately, I was here for 9-11, right? And I worked at downtown, at BI. So we were one of the hospitals, right, in proximity to the site. So mentally, I was prepared. I actually was expecting the worst because I had gone to disasters here living in New York City, and I was born and raised in New York, and you kind of, like, build that thick skin to deal with certain situations. What are some of the things you learned from the experiences of both Superstorm Sandy and 9-11 in terms of responding to these sorts of events? So you have to come together. You have to unite. You have to lean on those that are stronger than you. You have to go into survival mode. I remember when Superstorm Sandy, which was like you had to get to work because you were the only hospital standing. You know, we call on our colleagues, like, how are you going to get in? Like, 
you know, what supplies are you bringing so I can bring supplies? So I think definitely communication and knowing what's the basic needs to survive. Let's go to Puerto Rico. Tell me about your first day. Um, I woke up like around six. I was a little bit nervous, not sure what to expect. Um, got on this bus and, and drove down to Ponce. And that's when you start seeing like the destruction. But, but the most impacting thing for me was how empty the spaces were. You would go into these communities and it would be like ghost towns. Um, you know, cities that I've had gone through many times as a kid that were like vibrant and filled with people. And now they were just kind of empty and a lot of people have moved out. And so like that was my first impression. Lisa, describe the scenery for me. You arrive, you show up in one of these towns. What do you see? What do you feel? So the first place we went to was an area where the rocks have fallen from the mountains and had affected people's homes, cars, and the area was closed off. So when we get there, I see this massive rock on someone's property, which fell on the car. And I was like, is that person alive? That's the first thing I asked, is that person alive? And they say, yes. Um, he had not gone to work yet. So that to me was like, how do you even go to sleep? Like, I would be afraid too to go to sleep. And that first day I arrived there, we're canvassing and we're talking to people. There was a 5.0 earthquake and we felt it. You felt it? What did it feel like? It's like standing, <laughs> standing, uh, and top over the, the MTA times 10, basically. When you feel the train going by, it's like times 10. But um, I processed it afterwards because at the moment you have to stay in control. Afterwards. So you just acted like, oh, this happens all the time. Yes. In New York, we have earthquakes. Yeah, we have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can deal with this. Um, so you get to these towns, right? You're experiencing earthquakes. You're seeing ghost towns. You're seeing people in distress. What are, you, what are you doing? Are you going door to door? Like, how are you encountering people? How are they responding to you? What's that look like? We would essentially go door to door and knock um, and say, um, you know, good morning, good afternoon. We're volunteers. Uh, we would like to see if we could talk for a little bit, kind of get a sense of how you've been doing after the earthquakes. And people were very welcoming. Everyone I encounter was embracing. Everybody wanted to speak. There was not one person that said, I don't want to talk to you or I don't have time. They were always engaging. They were like, come in. I remember speaking to a lady and said, yes, I've gotten water. I have food. I have my medication. But no one has that come here to ask me, how am I doing? How am I coping? Take us to one encounter or one person whose story really moved you. Well, I have a lot. <laughs> like I said before, I think I have stories for days. Um, I met this man, 81 years old. He took me back to December 28th when there was initially some movement. And he's like, you see that door? And he pointed towards the back door. He goes, that door is open and it stays open ever since December 28th. And he told me, I sleep with my sneakers on. That broke my heart. And I'm like, what do you mean you sleep with your sneakers on? And he said, well, whatever I have to run. If I have to put my sneakers on, it's going to delay me. And then he tells me my wife is bedbound. And if I have to put on my sneakers and I have to save her, I'm not going to have time. So that really like touched my heart. I even get goosebumps just talking about it. What did you say to him? So, like you're there to provide mental health services, right? What do you what do you say to someone like that? So, first of all, I 
built on his strength, right? And I built on the fact that he's been in the service before. So he has like a plan and just acknowledge the fact that he's strong and how, how proud his wife must be of him and his children because he has children in the States. Um, and that he needs to take care of himself too. Cause I also told him, you got to take off your sneakers at some point. <laughs> you have to relax a little bit. Um, and make sure that he ate well. You know, we went over his plan, his medication. Um, and what if, you know, his plan doesn't work? What would he do next? You know, that's it. make sure his cell phone is always charged. Like little basic survival skills we went over. Um, but I think more, um, he helped me, if anything, you know, become stronger. That's interesting. You've now given two examples of mm-hmm. when other people helped you to be stronger. Yes. The first was with the tremors. <laughs> yes. And now the second one was with this guy. Yes. Because we learn from each other, right? Um, when you're going through natural disasters, you don't have the whole checklist. You kind of build on each other to make it through the the time, the struggles. And that's one thing I learned from there. We had to pull it together. Um, We all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. So where I lack, he's stronger at it. You're talking about the service, the group of service providers. Yes, yes. And even emotionally to help us walk through the community. Um, You know, we pull off for each other at the moment to debrief. Oh, my God, did you just hear that? Like, this is what's going on. So we kind of pull off or each, off each other to make it through. Yeah. Hansel, do you want to add to that? I feel like I also learned a lot from just being in this experience and, and, and meeting with people. I'll say that at times I felt very helpless because in mental health, there's, there's no easy fix, right? There's no like, take this antibiotics for seven days. I'll see you like in a month and you're good. Right. Like in, in mental health services, often are accumulative. You see people on a regular basis. You can provide them medication and that's and the symptoms do get better. But this is a very different scenario where we were mostly providing supportive psychotherapy and, and actively listening and providing feedback and accentuating their strength. Like you were saying that that was like a key component of like, oh, you know, you mentioned you've gone through this in the past and you're here you know, kind of repeating that to the individual so that that can, can get solidified in their in their mind. But I have to admit that sometimes I also got sort of like that, that my breath taken out of me just from, from hearing these stories. Um, there was this one woman that I think maybe you and I saw together, Lisa. Um, she was this like elderly woman living in this very small house. And we started talking and she tells us, you know, very tragic story of how her husband had recently died in the last few months unrelated to the earthquake. And one of her son had committed suicide um, during the period of where the earthquake had started. And she was very pretty much left alone living in this house. And I noticed that the seal in the house was yellow. And I asked her, oh, do you feel safe in this house? I see that FEMA has marked your house as yellow. Which means? Which means that it's not very safe to be living in. Yeah. And then she looks at me and says, oh, like that yellow sticker was from Hurricane Maria. That's not even from this time around. And I realized I looked up. Which was three years ago. Which was three years ago. And like somehow she had managed to keep a positive outlook of, you know, that things somehow would get better. 
I still don't know where she was tapping into to mm. <laughs> to have that. But I wonder if it was faith. Or I wonder if it was something else. Just her faith was big. Faith was big. Mm-hmm. I think most most households had a faith based um, background. And what does that look like in practice? It gives people meaning, mm-hmm. right? It gives people meaning. It gives people an explanation. You know, we know that faith is a protective factor against things like suicide and having some sort of connection to religious um, community is super helpful and, you know, develops like resilience. It protects people from having suicidal thoughts or and so it gives and and part of the theory is that it gives people meaning this happened for a reason. Mm -hmm. Right. As opposed to this terrible disaster happened in a vacuum and there is no way out of it and there is and it just did right if you give it meaning then you have meaning for yourself and for your life ever thought about enrolling in a clinical trial the mount sinai health system has over 800 active clinical trials each geared toward developing new medicines and treatments visit mountsinai.org/clinical-trials to see if you're eligible Mount Sinai, we find a way. You know, as a mental health provider, you learn to build on their faith. You ask them, what does that mean to you? And they will tell you, well, we didn't expect this magnitude, but if God put us here, he'll help us through it. Hmm. When you're doing your intervention, you build on that strength. You always look for what's their strength, what's their biggest strength, and you build on it. And you make them future-oriented. What do you mean by future-oriented? Say more. Future-oriented in that the homes will be rebuilt. Schools will open again, which there was no school in session while we were there. The only schools that were open were the private schools, and they were very, very few. Um, that they will be able to get back to their employments. Um, you know, the neighbors will be back, even though they left. You know, they will be able to get back to that pre-crisis mode that they were in. It's like the opposite of like when people have panic attacks. When you have a panic attack or an anxiety attack, you are so overwhelmed by the feeling that you're experiencing, right? The increased heart rate, the shortness of breath, the kind of feeling vibrating, the feeling of an impending doom, and the inability to step outside of that moment and remember or think, oh, there's moments where I don't feel this way. So like that is like future orientation where you think when you realize, yeah, right now it's bad, but... This is not how every moment of my life is. So tapping into that, and especially with the such short sessions or encounters, whatever you want to call it, that we had, that was like a lot of our goal, like tapping into people's strengths um, and building that up. How would you take somebody from who maybe didn't have that future-oriented outlook and kind of bring them along to see a future for themselves? That That is overall challenging, regardless of which setting that we're in. Um, So we would give them a scenario. Like, for example, this lady I told her, let's say you have another earthquake. What would you do? We're experiencing one right now. What are we going to do? You're going to help me get out of here. So how are we going to do this? So giving them scenarios, role play, teach back, um, help them identify things that they will see if a crisis occurs. Right. You figure out what people value. Everybody values something. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about how a religious background could be something of much value and can provide meaning. But people value family. People value seeing family members grow and age and seeing, like, you know, life progress. And so you can tap into things like that to develop hopefulness for the future. 
I'm interested in resilience kind of on a community level. Um, and I've been reading a lot. I know there's a lot of sociological work about the ways that communities bounce back from disaster. And, and there's an irony in it and um, in the fact that many times in the wake of a natural disaster, people are brought together in common purpose. And they often look back on those moments uh, as being full of joy and full of meaning. And I'm wondering whether you experienced that in Puerto Rico. You saw neighbors helping neighbors. You saw um, meaning and resilience kind of building up um, from the ground floor, as it were. So we did see a lot of that. Um, The community definitely came together. So one thing I observed about being there is that in the community, like within the three block radius, you have the grandmother lives there, the aunt, the cousin is everybody's kind of family. And those that are not our family, even though they're not blood related. I saw many um, people who homes were not destroyed and everyone else home was destroyed and they brought them in. They're not at the base camp. They're not in a tent sleeping outside their home. There was a neighbor who brought in her neighbor who has a history of dementia, brought her in and she's been staying with her. Ensuring that when the earthquake happened, everyone hit the streets and start calling the neighbor's name. You know, Maria, where are you? Jose, where are you? You know, making sure that everyone was alive. And I think um, overall, the community is very, very united. Very. Yeah, very much so. There was, there's, so there were the government-based camps where people can go and you can set up your own tent. And But not everybody liked being at the government-based camps because there was some, like, restrictions of, you know, like, playing loud music, being able to, like, drink, having to go to a bed at a certain hour. So a lot of people stayed in their own community and congregated around, like, the main park or a basketball court and set up their tents there. And that was sort of like these makeshift camps. They weren't being encouraged to do this by the government. They were just happening organically. And people felt safer because they were together with a group of people that they knew from their own community. They also feel safer because they were closer to their homes or whatever was left of their homes. Um, I think it's human nature, right? We're social beings. It's human nature to kind of want to seek each other and try to help each other in, in, in a certain way. I think it's easy to put your differences aside in the moment of need. Yeah, I think uh, exactly. And this is yeah. one, of the, one of the things I find so interesting. It's like there are two conceptions of, of how we are. What is human nature, right? Um, there's one that assumes that the veneer of civilization is very thin, the slightest crack, everyone, every man for himself, pandemonium breaks loose. When in fact, it sounds like in many of these instances, what happens is that resilience and connections generate, start generating almost immediately, and they cross all the sorts of fissures that we normally see in our society. You know, whether it's class or race or you know what have you. I think that's so inspiring. Mm-hmm. I, there was this study that was done in some of the survivors of the Pulse shooting in Florida, um, where the goal was to test or to create a narrative of like what was resilience in this context and one of the main things that they reported that the survivors reported was like community building right developing a community helped and when this happened this this shooting happened people came together and that was like the huge protective factor for them and it's a key component of developing resilience right developing community yeah and also i think um helping them tap into their own awareness 
you know, how to survive, right? Because they went through this natural disaster, but this, this is not their first, you know? So we tapped into as well previous experiences. You know, they had the hurricanes, but we also tapped into their own family, you know, inner mm-hmm. circle disasters. Yeah. In your story, you can find examples of resilience. Exactly. Think so, about that, and that will help you through this. Exactly, yes. So going back to, to what we were talking about a moment ago um, with uh, the res- community resilience in the wake of disasters, whether it's Pulse or whether it's a, a natural disaster, um, one of the reasons I was so eager to bring that up is because I think with, uh, with climate change, we can expect these sorts of things to happen. Well, not earthquakes, but but other forms of natural disasters more frequently. So it's it's important to to talk about it and talk about um, the sorts of things that happen and the ways to prepare. Um, and I was wondering if if you had any thoughts along those lines, um, based on your experience in Puerto Rico. What sorts of things um, could a listener be thinking about prior to to an event like this? Well, with hurricanes, not so much earthquakes, I feel that there's a start point and there's an end point. So if people would start thinking that we're going to get through this, like it'll start at this time and it's expected to end at this time and we can prepare emotionally, physically, we can prepare for disasters, for natural disasters um, and build on the your community to make themselves stronger. Yeah. I, one of the ways to develop resilience is to help people find groups of individuals in which they can identify with. If you're attached to a community, whether, you know, religious, racial, um, based on gender, sexual orientation, whatever it is, that actually helps you be more resilient um, and snap back from um, stressful situations. So I would wonder if there's like a way to promote that before disasters happen. I mean, you're talking about it almost in a prophylactic way, right? How do we help people? Well, well, it sounds like if, if, you know, simply investing in communities for yourself, it's like building those connections to groups of people and with whom you feel a deep affinity, Mm -hmm. like as a general life practice, you know, Mm -hmm. we we talk a lot about social isolation nowadays and and or tribal mentality, or tribal mentality. Um, But it seems like that is, is, is a healthy way to prepare not only to, to enrich your life now, but to mm-hmm. prepare for something like this happening. Right. So do you have any plans to do another deployment? I do. Um, I offered, um, I already said that there was another one I would go. There is a need. I mean, there is such of a dire need that um, I feel I can't sit back and not do more. You know, I was introduced to this world out there and I can't just leave it out there without knowing how they're doing. You know, it's just part of who I am. Um, and I, I think that, like I said, if if I can help, why not? You know, even if it's one person we impact. Yeah, I agree. I, I would do it in a heartbeat. And, you know, part of the plan was this first phase was a little bit of developing an assessment of what was the major need um, in, in the island. We ended up seeing 1,200 people, yeah. the, te- the entire team. Um, during that uh, week period. And so now we're collecting data and trying to determine what are the major needs, what were the major symptoms, diagnoses. And then the second stage is that, just to kind of analyze the data. And the third stage was to create a form of ongoing therapy, whether it's through telepsych or whether it's sending another team. We're not sure how that's what that's going to look like, but... Yeah, 100% I would be involved in it. I mean, it's like once you tap into it, like you were saying, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And 
you know, for me, it's like kind of personal. My, my, my family is still there and they experience this um, on a regular basis. So, yeah, I would go in a heartbeat. Great. Well, thank you both so much for your work and for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Hansel Arroyo is the Director of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine at the Institute for Advanced Medicine and the Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery here at Mount Sinai. Lisa Abar is Clinical Manager in the Psychiatric Emergency Room at Mount Sinai Beth Israel. Road to Resilience is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's made by Katie Ullman, Nikki Hudson, and me, John Earl. Lucia Lee is our executive producer. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know I say this every time, but it's true. It helps other people find the show. And so we really appreciate it if you could do that. Thanks. We'll be back soon with more episodes. And until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.